Welcome back, my friends. It's me, your host, P. We're on Bitcoin Magazine Live, and I am here today with Isabella Kaminska. How's it going? Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. It looks like you're in a fantastic uh, studio, although maybe those are blinds. But They're blinds. <laughs> they look great. It's wonderful to have you. I want to introduce you briefly to our listeners and then ask you to sort of expound on that because you have such a, a really substantial past in the journalistic space. Journalistic space? Journalism? I think journalism is the right word here. But uh, you were at the Financial Times for 13 years. You also were the editor of FT Alphaville, which is, as I understand it, Financial Times blog that focuses specifically on markets and finance. You also were a columnist. You've written on tech, finance, the broader markets. You've written about Bitcoin. What else What else is part of your significant history? Tell us who you are and what you're about. I think you've kind of covered it all, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a very eclectic background. I used to do, I mean, I studied ancient history and a bit of art. I spent some time in the former Soviet Union in Azerbaijan as well. I spent some time covering business in Poland. So I've been around, also worked for BP for a little bit. I think British you Petroleum. could call me, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, in their comms department. That was about 20 years ago. So I've had a, a flavor of many different things. So I guess I'm a generalist, <laughs> a, a, a jack of all trades, but it but it, it speaks to my style of reporting. So I, I think Alphaville as well was very much focused on, I guess, being in between all the different sections. So reporters are either specialists or they are more generalists. I think Alphaville would go deep dive when, when something popped up that was worthy of the attention. And we would be like a little advanced SAS troop that would go in, do a recce, really be ahead of the curve. And then we'd pull out and go wherever the, wherever the next market crisis was. So we'd be like on-call specialists. And as a result, I think you get a really deep understanding of a lot of issues in little fragments rather than being a continuing expert in one field. But that's how I fell into crypto because I think we were, at the time, you know, the technology team didn't think it was a tech story. They thought it was a finance story. So they weren't covering it. And the finance team thought it was a tech story. So they weren't covering it. So we were kind of the, the team that ended up, you know, picking it up because we weren't specific <laughs> and it was it was clearly an evolving story. And so what year was that? So I think I first covered it in 2012, 2013. Yeah. Wow. So 12, 12 I think. 20 Tracy Alloway was actually the first one to write about Bitcoin at the FT. She's now at Bloomberg. You might know her. She she hosts Odd Lots. Yeah. So course. she did the first post and I remember that very clearly and then and then we we just kept going from there. Interesting. Okay, so this is as part of FT Alphaville. You basically were sent in. Nobody wanted to cover, you know, the cryptocurrency space, Bitcoin, and so you guys took it on. What was the team? What was the FT Alphaville team like? You mentioned you were kind of this strike team. How many people were on it? I mean, it varied over time, but it was between five and eight people. I think in its heyday, it was like eight, nine people strong. We would sometimes second people from other departments, but it was always a team of around four and five. Towards the latter years, we diminished to four people, but it was, I guess, a function of how much spare cash there was for, for special ops. And we were like little skunk works of the FT outside of the direct chain of command, somewhat like a little secret cell doing our own thing. But as, as, as I guess our coverage drew, I mean, in the, in the early days, the, the rest of the newspaper, that it was quite slow to 
adopt the the blogosphere because it was seen as something that was beneath the kind of you know the the, the paper was very established and you know that online thing you know it was just what kids did right and so we were we were the online team and internally we didn't have a lot of social currency but externally we we were going up and up and up. And I think at some point, I think that there was a shift in, in, in how like newspapers treated online versus the paper. And we ended up having a much bigger sort of social impact because we'd already been online and all the other journalists were playing catch up with us. So that's when our, I guess, our currency began to ascend a little bit. But it also made us more prone to being controlled by the internal kind of editorial processes because I think when finally people realize that you know people pay attention to this weird little thing (laughs) we need to control it better so I think that's when some of our freedom was was finished a little bit interesting I'm just imagining you as like the most badass possible group of of journalists. I'm imagining you like smoking, you know, it's like you're like the, the like the goon squad and like a police procedural, you know, everybody's like, oh, don't talk to them. Don't sit with them. They're crazy. You guys are like. It, was, it with... was, The early days was like that. Um, That's I mean, so funny. certainly in the early days, me and Tracy did used to smoke. I don't smoke anymore, but I think, oh, I hope the connection's still working. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was a bit like that. We were definitely outsiders and so, like we were this like little, you know, we didn't talk to anyone. People were like, who are those guys? Like yeah, vice definitely. in a police procedure. That's what I'm thinking yeah. of. The vice people department. maybe a little bit scared of us. I, I, maybe. I think definitely it sounds like. Okay, so so you, you, you start doing this. You said you started reporting on the cryptocurrency space and Bitcoin. You said in about 2013? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it might have been as early as 2012. I'm going to look it up. Okay. <laughs> but I, I think it was as early. I mean, it, I remember when I first covered it, like Bitcoin was around $200. So maybe less. I think I remember it being in the hundreds. So I could have made a lot of money, <laughs> but I didn't because I was neutral and I never bought any. So oh, I was God. in no I, for a long time. Was that because, oh, there's a slight echo. Oh, I wasn't hearing it before, but I am when I'm talking. Uh, maybe, maybe if I... If you click on the little gear in the on the bottom right of the screen, and then you click, mm-hmm. uh, just make sure that uh, that like there's an echo. If you go to the audio setting, there should be like an echo cancellation little uh, switch. Make sure okay. that's switched on. Oh, all right. Well, let's 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 see if we can uh, keep going. I think that may have fixed it. But so, tell us about your your experience as a journalist reporting on you know the Bitcoin space because you know as Barbarian Pete Rizzo refers to you as a as a doom coiner now, but you know, someone who, well, I, I don't want to spoil this, the story. So tell us like what it was like, what your, your views towards Bitcoin were like when you first started reporting on it, how you viewed it and how that changed over time. As we So I hope maybe the connection is going a bit, but it must be the rain or something in the UK or maybe who knows. So how it changed. So in the early days, I think I was a central banking geek. I was a conventional TradFi geek. And so naturally, I was quite cynical when something like Bitcoin came on the scene as a financial history scholar. You know, I I had looked at all sorts of different money systems. And it seemed to me quite naive, the idea that Bitcoin could sort of take over the kind of conventional traditional system. Also, I think it's really important to stress that even though we'd been through 2008, and I was noted for the conventional banking system, I think Alphaville's sort of position was we're just critical of everybody. <laughs> we weren't we weren't fussy in who we were critical. So we weren't like cheerleading one and then and being you, anti you were the other. We're Bitcoiners at um, heart already. 
everybody, you know, being a Bitcoiner <laughs> is often about just being a contrarian and just fighting exactly. with everybody. Exactly. Oh, definitely having connection issues. Sorry about that. I don't know why. I am on a, on, on a, on a proper connection as well. Strange. So yeah, I think how it changed is, so in the early days, I was very suspicious of the idea that this would eliminate the need for third parties. And the way I saw it evolving, especially the rise of, you know, Mt. Gox at the time, you know, even when Mt. Gox went down, it seemed obvious to me that this was just clearly, you know, Bitcoin didn't solve the intermediary problem because it was always going to have liquidity issues in terms of exchange. And I saw the potential for terrible abuse with the rise of like all sorts of new intermediaries who are going to have to bridge the divide in terms of the knowledge gap because Bitcoin works in theory for like people who understand technology and have the, the I guess, the tech know-how to manage all their privacy stuff and all that. But the average user is pretty lazy and, you know, you're just not going to be able to scale the this whole thing up without without an intermediary interface so that was always my position i think and i i, I stick to that I, I i think the way things have evolved and that was it was exactly how i predicted and i was always very skeptical of like coinbase and all the other kind of exchanges that they went up to all sorts of stuff in the in the background because it seemed too tempting a proposition not to not to and as we now know with ftx clearly these temptations were always there and and, and Bitcoin itself doesn't solve that problem. That said, and the other thing I used to moan about a lot was th this idea in the early days that Bitcoin was going to be cheaper and, and revolutionize finance and it, everyone could be their own bank and it would be a minimal cost. It seemed obvious to me that scaling would become an issue and with that cost would rise. And I think I've, I think that was a fair prediction as well. But Can I, can I jump in and ask one clarifying yeah. question? Mm -hmm. So you said that, you know, Bitcoin doesn't, solve the the issue that you mentioned with like you know the suspicions that you had around coinbase and you said that with ftx we're seeing that kind of play out i would argue that bitcoin does actually aim or attempts to and i think successfully solves those specific issues with the temptations that you're mentioning by disintermediating the process so you know with bitcoin it's like if you hold your own private keys then and you understand how to self-custody, which is a hurdle that as a, as a community, as, a, as an industry, we're slowly overcoming. More and more people are getting onboarded. But I would argue that that's, that is the, one of the most amazing things about Bitcoin is that it does disintermediate that financial transaction process. Yeah, yeah I think, you see, this is the thing. Like, if you can be asked to learn it and to do the self-custody, it can. But the average user, it's always the path of least resistance, right? And you can take the... What is what's the adage? You can take the horse to market, but you it's to water, but you can't make it drink, right? So I think that applies to Bitcoin. So a lot of the problems that Bitcoin faces are not technological problems, they're socioeconomic problems, right? They're to do with how people behave and and the muscle memory they need to develop to to use these tools in a way that benefits them. It's very much like the collapse of USSR. You know, people were suddenly given the option to to own lots of shares, but they had no idea what a share was. And, and as a result, they got easily exploited because they didn't have any educational, you know, background into how free markets work. So these, these tools, before they become readily kind of, before they can really fulfill their potential, I think 
people need to be taught in how they're used. And unfortunately, before people could be taught, you had the rise of all sorts of intermediaries who were very happy to take advantage of, of people who couldn't be bothered to do that, right? So I think that was a fair criticism. And I think at the time I was, you know, very, it's not that I was trusting of the government. I mean, obviously, I, I'm just generally quite skeptical. But I didn't think there was anything intrinsically wrong in the architecture of the the core system. I thought like the b- banks had definitely fucked up and there were bad incentives, but I don't think I really thought that the system was fundamentally corrupt. Oh, that's interesting. But I my perspective on that has changed in the last two years. And I'm more of the opinion that we need, like corruption is really deep seated now. And I think from that, that's changed my perspective on, on Bitcoin in that, I am much more cynical about the world than I was, say, 10 years ago. So I see the purpose of Bitcoin. I can see the I can see why people would want to learn and go through all those complex processes to defend their their capacity to intermediate without without a reliance on a third party. Right. Yeah. So I didn't see the purpose for that of that earlier on. But I'm yeah. I'm, I'm wittering on. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think there's a couple things that you said that I want to I want to respond to. The first is I uh, I agree that one of the real challenges that we have certainly historically faced with Bitcoin is the user experience problem, right? I mean, it used to be the case that if you wanted to privately and uh, you know safely hold your keys, you know, if you were on the extreme end, I mean, you bought a printer that could have the Wi-Fi card disconnected. You printed out your paper uh, your paper wallet. Well, first, before you did that, you ripped the Wi-Fi card out of the printer. Then you connected it to like a laptop that you were never going to use again. You printed out your paper words. Then you smashed that printer. You know, it's like this whole extensive process, right? But we've come so far since those insane, crazy days in the past, and. I think that some of the most exciting things that are being built in the Bitcoin space, you know, are specifically focused on how do we make having self-custody a process that feels very natural, that people can understand quickly. You know, there's work that, you know, through Obinwasu and, you know, Eric Syrian are doing with uh, with Federated Chaomi and Mints, which is this, you know, it's sort of like uh, halfway between, you know, full custody or can be used in a way that's halfway between full custody and, you know, not not custodying your own Bitcoin, where you're you're kind of able to leverage these existing trust systems like you know communities or churches or whatever it is to help people feel more comfortable and safely holding their Bitcoin. I mean, that- to be fair, I mean, I, I I look, I I don't disagree that that has to happen, but to be fair, that's kind of how banks evolved. I mean, banks evolved in a similar uh. way, you know. So, like, I'm very much of the there's nothing new under the sun, and I think a lot of the Bitcoin stuff is is basically history repeating itself. However, there are two core things that make me a doom coiner that I think are different to conventional banking. And one of them is that ultimately, like there is a value in having a an, on a wholesale basis, a instrument that you can trade on international capital markets that is resistant to tampering and corruption when it comes to trade with enemies, right? So when you don't trust your counterpart because they live in a completely different jurisdictional system with different laws, different, you know, all sorts of different standards. And in a pol- polarized world, one where we're increasingly kind of not trusting all sorts of other areas, right? This is going to become increasingly important. We're not all in the happy, clappy, single dollar system anymore. It looks increasingly like, like we're going to get, go to a multipolar one. And I think 
there will be a need for a clearing currency that is entirely neutral and has no political bias in it with respect to how it's valued vis-a-vis all these different trust zones. So I think Bitcoin will definitely come into its own in a multipolar political order because it just seems logical for me that that would happen. And of course, when you don't trust your enemy, there's no other way you can clear large payments in a trustworthy way outside of a kind of Bitcoin system. So there's that. It used to be gold, of course, but like I think uh, the economics of transport, you, you, you know what I mean. It's, yeah, of it's, course. <laughs> gold, gold is, is also it's heavy. Gold. It's but yeah, um, exactly. so I see I see that. And then the second thing that I think is very important about Bitcoin is the censorship resistance, which I think has in a world of uncertainty and and who knows how the powers that be you know whether they abuse their rights or not they might they might not but i i never thought they would but i think i'm more conscious of how quickly large communities can descend into madness because of the in- internet and who knows if and when people do go a bit mad it's good that there is a contingency in bitcoin if and, and at that point it would make sense for you to learn all those processes because when you're like living in a nice free society and, and a bank offers, you know, path of least resistance makes total sense because you're not worried about anything. But if you're fighting for your life or you're having to raise money in, in the context of an oppressive regime that's going to kill you or whatever, then you're going to learn how to self-custody. Like, it, it, you know, that that is the incentive you need to do it. And I think it's really important that that, that there is that possibility with Bitcoin that you can always go to a last resort non-confiscatable asset that can allow you to raise money for resistance of any sort. So I think so those are my, that's why I'm a doom coiner <laughs> if that makes sense. No, it does, it does and I, I just think to me, you know, I often talk about how in the United States at least and I think in the UK as well, but but even more so in the United States as the, you know, producer of the world reserve currency, we are almost handicapped by having the experience of living in a country where we are at the world, or we do produce the world reserve currency. You go to places where that are already forced to use the dollar as a store of value, or to use other currencies as a store of value. And for them, they they get a lot of the ideas of Bitcoin just immediately. They're like, "Oh my gosh, this totally makes sense!" Like, where can I get it? Whereas with you know people in the United States or in Europe, it takes so much more effort. I find to explain to them why these things are useful. So something I was reflecting on while you were no, I, th- I think that's exactly right. So I think it's just a shame that the asset itself is still very volatile because if you are in a precarious situation, it's not great that you have have a highly volatile uh, asset. But I think, you know, I think that will change in time. And also once a lot of the froth in the market is with the, with the you know, if I identify with any team in the crypto world other than Doom Coiners, it's more of the Bitcoin maxi mi- mindset because I do think all, all the other stuff is mostly crap. And I mean, there's something interesting in NFTs, but not in how it's like been propagated. There, I'm quite, I'm quite interested in. I don't know because I'm, I'm, I did do art. I like the idea, the intrinsic idea. If you could onboard everybody into a single system where you respect these rights, but it's it's hackable, right? It's not, it's not the same conceptually as bitcoin so i would so when you say that about precarious societies i think that makes a lot of sense to me it's just a shame about the inherent volatility it's also a shame in my mind that so many bitcoin companies have seemingly 
abandon those core values and are happy to kind of forego censorship resistance and and I, you know obviously I, I understand why they're doing it because they want to be regulated and they want to benefit from the regular being inside the regulatory loop right but it is a massive compromise and it it is creating the opposite of what bitcoin is supposed to be about I want you to sling some mud. Who were you talking about specifically? Let's get into hmm. it. Well, I wrote a column about Coinbase when they listed, right? I think that was like a deal with the devil, right? To get Absolutely. A <laughs> I hate Coinbase so much. <laughs> well, because they're not they're the antithesis of what it is Absolutely. supposed to be. And I think, you know, you do it for the money, you, you get, you know, the stamp of approval from... It's like sucking up to your parents or whoever to to get the stamp of approval you need and then abandoning all your values it's, it's, it's an entrapment process which is which is fine i guess sbx was also uh, sbf sbx sbf was also kind of going down that cozying up to regulators and i'm i'm okay to abandon my values providing i'm in the regulatory loop right and then once once i'm in there we'll put up a moat so there's no new competition that can come and offset me right so that that I think is quite despicable because <laughs> it's it's definitely hypocritical to the whole value proposition. And I was very surprised that people fell for it, but they did. But they did, which just tells you it was always Coinbase was more about speculation and making number go up and benefiting from number go up than anything about actual protection of civil liberties. And oh, uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, I agree. It, it is infuriating. When people, the way that that gets obfuscated, the kind of the affinity scamming with Bitcoin, you know, you have Bitcoin and then you have everything else, but you know, the constant refrain of like, oh, I love Bitcoin, buy my shitcoin is so disappointing. And we just see it again and again and again. Um, hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. The Bitcoin Magazine Podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. With open enrollment upon us, what if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you can invest in Bitcoin instead? With CrowdHealth, you can choose your doctors, put aside money for your health expenses in your own account, and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin. Right now through the end of the year, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to crowdhealthbtc.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. 
Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. I want to I want to dig into the term doom coiner because we sort of we didn't actually in this conversation go into what your experience was during COVID and really what that moment was for you and you were like oh my gosh this has to change this is not tenable can you speak to that? Well, I mean, I, I guess we all went through COVID in our own ways. I personally, for everyone, went mad, but that's. I know not everybody thinks like me. I, I, it's not that I'm a COVID denier. I had COVID. I, I completely. I, you know, I don't want to diminish people's experiences. Obviously, people died. It was a terrible disease. But I think the proportional reaction was over the top. And I think it did us more harm than good. And what I really didn't like was the question of free speech that came with it. And the fact that suddenly anyone who was questioning policy was deemed some sort of dissident or nutter or conspiracy theorist. It was incredible in my mind and a very anti-scientific. As a critical minded journalist, I just couldn't, I found it very hard to 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 operate in that environment and and i I'm, i've never been a kind of consensus player i've never been somebody who just complies so <laughs> i i mean i obviously I'm, I'm i'm law abiding don't get me wrong but like i i i feel that you have to push back against stuff that you don't believe in and suddenly not being able to do that made me very scared about society because i thought it really doesn't take as much as i thought it to make everybody kind of turn against you and go a bit mad and start suppressing long-standing civil liberties as if as if you know they just don't mean anything anymore so that really opened my eyes and I know and and I guess that's what made me open-minded towards Bitcoin because I was like well maybe there is a problem here if this can happen with COVID God knows what happens in some other situation right so I think my approach to Bitcoin is very much like in it's like an insurance policy brilliant if we never need to use it because we can trust our government and certainly theoretically centralized systems are more efficient there's no doubt about that if you can trust your government and you can benefit from those frictionless systems that's great but once you once that trust is gone once you are in in an oppressive system you can't build a contingency (laughs) the contingency has to already be there so it's too late by then so my view is very much, I mean, people will, people kind of question me when I say this, but I do think it's a worthy worthy an analogy, which is it's a bit like the right to bear arms. It's best when you don't have to use those arms. Like they're just there as a guarantee, just in case, you know, they're supposed to keep the government honest so that it never goes down the total tyrannical dystopic route, right? Because it knows the citizenry is armed with, with, a mechanism for defense well i see the same with central banks it's like hopefully we can trust them because they know that if they do something crazy we have the option to turn to bitcoin and that should maintain that should keep them honest and that's the equilibrium that i think is ideal like 
those who want to use Bitcoin and need it today, great, it exists. But in a in a, in the in an ideal world, it's a market of many different currencies, and people can do whatever they want, and the fiat currency can coexist. But the fact that the Bitcoin is there will keep central banks honest. Yeah. Man, I'm just thinking, I wonder how that is going to play out in the in the short and medium term. Or how do you imagine that playing out where, because right now I would view Bitcoin as being under extremely intense attack from central banks and centralized systems. We've got CBDCs that are, you know, trying to be brought online. Um, would you agree with that statement that central banking systems are actively working to, they now understand what Bitcoin is to the point where they're afraid of it, in my opinion. I think it, I think actually they were more they're more afraid of stable coins. Mm. They were really thrown by Libra, and they were really thrown oh, yeah. by the rise of Tevra. And and they don't want they don't want copycats infringing on their space. I think they're less worried about Bitcoin because they don't think Bitcoin will ever amount to anything because it's too volatile. I think they're wrong about that though. I think I think, but the the main impetus for CBDCs is is stable coins and and Libra. That said. I do think, you know, if if central banks are smart, they will have an active debate with the with the citizenry when they design these things, and they don't just like start putting ridiculous programmable features about, you know, how you p p penalize people who don't, you know, that cross the road at the wrong time by, <laughs> you know, you can't buy a coffee today, whatever. I think if they're smart, they will open a dialogue and they will do really good educational campaign and listen to the people about their concerns. And I think if they want to compete with China and Russia, then the Western central banks will have to bake in liberalism into the features of their CBDCs. Now, obviously, that is going to be very hard. Like, what is the incentive of doing a CBDC if you if you take the program programmability away? It's like almost pointless. Like, we already have digital fiat money, really. Once you once you start caveating it for, for, for liberalism, I think, I think actually, Actually, you're never going to have a CBDC that competes as efficiently as one that is quite totalitarian because that's just the nature of systems. So the question is, what problem are they really solving? So the temptation then, I think, for the central bankers will be to, to infringe on people's rights. And they'll do it in the name of all sorts of things, whether it's fighting climate change or whatever. So whether they can sell it to the people, that is the big question. But I think overall it's great that Bitcoin is around and perhaps this will be the moment with the SBF collapse, the FTX exchange, that people start to revisit the, the real kind of custody ownership, was it self-custody framework? And perhaps we it's a time for us to build back be a better system in, in Bitcoin, which isn't so reliant on third parties that maybe we learn from our mistakes as well. And then everyone kind of benefits from the resilience and prepares for for a mechanism that can actually challenge any top-down authority from CBDCs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it seems as though the way CBDCs will probably be rolled out is the same way that, in my mind, instead of trying to penalize people for you know wrong behavior, right? Everybody's worried that it's going to be like, if you don't spend this CBDC within two weeks, you lose it. It seems like we've already got systems in place and people are already very comfortable with credit card-based systems where it's or similar systems where it's like, if you spend it on this specific sector of the economy or in this specific way, you get bonus points. It'll be sort of like the carrot versus the whip, but mm -hmm. I think that will still lead to the same outcome in the end if they're able to push it and launch them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it, well, you've already, you know, with the energy crunch, I think you'll see people getting discounts on their energy bills if, if they 
do energy saving behaviors and and that's how it will start um and it will combine into sort of account based programmable credit feature where money itself becomes totally denutralized because nobody's money is going to be fungible with somebody else's money because everyone will have different boundaries on how they can spend their money right and different you know so if you're if it used to be that money is neutral and that's why markets work because the price signal is what determines how goods respond to supply and demand but in a cbdc world you risk totally demonetizing the system and going to a world where things clear not through any price signal but through some arbitrary algo driven ai system that determines on a top down very what i, uh, what I call a goss plan 2.0 system which which is focused not on innovation and 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 create human creativity but is very top down and retrospective based on how your behaviors were yesterday not on what you can fulfill in the future oh that's that so interesting really, yeah and that's really dangerous because for us to really get through the challenges of the next century we have to innovate and any of these ai holistic overly controlling systems have a tendency in my opinion to repress the individual and repress his capacity for innovation and innovation can only come out of come with risk but if you want to de-risk the system and i think that's exactly what they're trying to do they're trying to de-risk the system to the nth degree but there is no with no risk there is no innovation and that is the problem and if there's no innovation then i think our species is kind of doomed so not very could... cheerful i'm afraid <laughs> The moniker makes sense now. I get it. Doom pointer. No, no, but 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 to be candid, I completely agree with you. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it from the perspective of CBDCs blurring the price signal and distorting what are already not efficient markets, but even further. That almost seems like a specific goal. Like you know, pe- the 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 idea that we live in a capitalist society with free markets is, of course, a lie. But it's still a it's still a, a shockingly I would say pervasive mantra theme idea that people love to kind of we live in America at least you know you know and uh, I hadn't thought of a C- CBDCs as a way to undermine that even further. Well, exactly, and I think I think that is for me the biggest biggest concern. And <laughs> we've been here before because that's a kind of what the Soviet Union was trying to do with Gosplan. So that was the central planning system that determined, you know, on an outcome basis, so that the outcomes or the objectives were set by you know a very centralized top down process. We want to be here in five years, and this is how we will do it to achieve that. Whereas I think you know a free market capitalist system. You're not supposed to be. You're not supposed to know where you're going from a top-down basis. Yes, you have vision, but the vision comes from the bottom up. So, it's it's expanding the opportunity to almost anybody to carve and shape the future of the world based on ideas that compete in the market in a market in a free market. Right? If if you are in a system where everything is top-down, how and you're going down the wrong path? How can you? How can you? you know, navigate your way against collapse. You can't because you've put all your eggs in one basket that this system is the future. It's like, that's why I worry about renewables today is that, you know, there is this perception that with Russian gas, for example, we can, we should just double down on renewables. We don't need them. Like this is the great opportunity to shift from fossil fossil fuel dependence. But that is very naive because A, for, um, renewable tech isn't quite there. Certainly 
wind is more there than solar, but but even wind, but wind wind is not applicable everywhere, and the intermittency of of renewables has not been solved. If you go all in on renewables that we have today, and you force people to take them up, you eliminate the market incentive for anyone to innovate something else, and so you're you're actually repressing innovation because you're saying we've got to go into these nearly there but not quite renewables that aren't actually going to fix the problem rather than allowing the market to adjust through what I would say is a better mechanism, which is using natural gas as a, as a transition fuel. And collectively, we would still be better off because intermittency hasn't been solved. And now we're in a situation where we're having to go back to burning coal, one of the dirtiest fuels on planet Earth, because because we wanted to cancel investment in, in that gas, which is much cleaner. It makes absolutely no sense. It's infuriating. So these are the sort of unintended consequences that come from top-down planning environments. I don't think it's healthy. And that's why I think Bitcoin is essential in some ways to push back against any of that. Because it's only out of a competing dark market that you can get or dark, you know, it might be light. <laughs> Who knows? Evil, evil, you're saying. Uh, but you see, I think the regulatory system or like the conventional system thinks about freedom. It's very scared of freedom because freedom, with freedom comes the right to choose bad as well as good. You hope people would choose. People, given, people are given freedom to choose and you hope they choose to do the right thing. But it's not a free system if you take away the option to do bad, right? So that's why regulators and, and governments feel very scared about freedom because they need to manipulate you, they think, into doing the good stuff, not the bad stuff. And that's why I think with Bitcoin, there is such an emphasis on, well, it's used by dark markets and, and terrible things. And yes, it is. But sometimes, you know, I think in an oppressive regime, the today's criminals become freedom fighters, right? So you have to sometimes do... The tables can turn quite easily. So today's criminals, tomorrow's heroes. It's really a matter of perspective, depending on who is oppressing who. And that's why freedom is so subjective, but also so important. Yeah, very well said. So how do you see this playing out in the short and medium term as we go through this? And I'm taking notes, so I'm going to hold you to this. I'm going to contact you and make sure that you were right. But now I'll take aside. How do you see this playing out over the next year, five years, 10 years. What, the whole thing? Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah, just like everything that's happening in the solar system today, you know, including, huh. you know, how you see kind of this, this CBDC. conflict between, you know, CBDCs, but also just kind of Bitcoin and the centralized systems that are threatened by it and stable coins. So I think we'll see this massive route. I don't think it's the end of the fallout with FTX. I suspect I suspect there's going to be another episode. I mean, it's following the pattern of 2008 in funny ways. So it was like Luna, Terra Luna was like the best dance moment, or maybe more like LTCM. And then now is maybe the best dance moment. And then we're still going to have a Lehman maybe. So I I suspect it's not over yet, but I think to be cliche, it's probably good for Bitcoin because it shakes out all the nonsense. And hopefully that me makes the system more resilient. And unlike, you know, unlike 2008, there is no bailout. So there is, there is going to be actual moral hazard. We're not going to eliminate that. So this is an interesting test. And it's like a parallel world of like, what would have happened to our core financial system if Bernanke hadn't have bailed out the system, right? Would it have regrown? Would it? Would people have weathered the losses? Like, 
it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, it's not comparable in scale, but it is a microcosm. Uh, it's like a little test, like a little petri dish, where we can figure out what might have happened. We not bailed out the system. And I reckon. Are you a hundred? Mm-hmm. You're hundred percent confident that there won't be any bailouts. What from the government? I don't think it will come from the government. I mean, it might. I, I agree, by the way, but I'm just I'm curious. No, no, I don't think. I think, I mean, if, if we're going to go down conspiracy theories, I think I think it's entirely possible that the FTX do, failure the will just encourage re- hyper-regulation of the sector and that people will be, you know, incredibly fearful of investing in crypto from now on. And I think KYC, AML, and, and there'll be almost no, you know, what's the word? Freedom wallets or whatever. Like, it'll be very hard to have something that isn't hyper-regulated. But hopefully the system will innovate and find ways to get around that. Because I think, I mean, this is controversial, but I think if Bitcoin has to succumb to regulation, it kind of defies the point. I don't think that's controversial at all. I completely agree. I think. <laughs> it, I is think con- that- it is controversial in my cat, in my track. <laughs> You're hanging out with um, the wrong people. It's supposed to be self-regulating. That's the idea. I think in, a, in an ideal world, it's self-regulating. It doesn't need the additional authority. And people have to go through these periods of pain and be be kind of, you know, and learn from them because it's a cyclical thing, like Disney films or whatever. We all have to go through <laughs> a Disney film like, as we grow up. We all learn from it. And then every few years, there's a new generation of people who go through it. But what the conventional system has done is it's tried to take risk out of the system completely. It's hyper, it's overreacted. Like, I'm not saying it's difficult because the banks were doing really dodgy stuff, right? (laughs) Don't get me wrong. They were. And they should have been more honorable and they should have self-regulated better. They got bailed out, right? So there was never any real penalty. Now, what the penalty, the penalty that has been applied to them is simply that they are no longer able able to make the hyper profits they used to. But there was no no retros- nobody lost any money, right? In banking, not really. Not not the per- not the people. Like very few people in banking lost their assets and wealth, right? Um, some did on on the margin, but like most people didn't, right? So there was never any pain in banking. They were just, they've just been clipped in, in terms of how much money they can make. But I'm not sure that's actually a great solution because if you're doing an honorable job and you've learned your lesson, you should be able to make money. So the way we've coped with the crisis is kind of a bit wrongheaded in my idea because we never penalized the people who did the bad behavior. But now we've kind of socialized the the future potential pain or penalty by making sure no one in banking can can make any money. And that's sad because banking actually used to be one of the few professions where people could elevate themselves on a st- like in terms of status. Like there are very few industries which people can access and make a lot of wealth in. Like it's it's very it, it, it is very unique in that sense and banking generally didn't discriminate like they just wanted savvy people they didn't care what class you came from or you know they just wanted bright young people who can make money right so in that sense it was very egalitarian in a weird way but i think we've now repressed banking entirely so there isn't that potential so a lot of the people who would have been 
misbehaving in banking have turned to like the crypto market or wherever instead. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that SBF came from conventional finance and then pivoted into crypto because, you know, you really, I mean, that's a bit, maybe that's a bit much, but I, I do think that like the worst of the worst ended up coming into crypto from from banking right so these behaviors never go never go away but i think in crypto unlike in in core banking the bad guys will now be punished hopefully and they should be punished yeah you mean they lose their wealth they lose their wealth and yes yes i see right they don't get bailed out yeah because i i do not think sbf is going to go to jail i would i think he should but i don't think that's going to happen but I well, we have to give him the benefit, of, like innocent until proven guilty. So he has to go through some sort, some sort of process. But at the moment, I mean, who knows what happened behind the scenes? But I think we have to be level-headed about it. I do believe in the in the judicial process of innocent you're saying, until proven guilty. You're saying lynch mobs bad. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Controversial well, opinion. Got a it. A good example of that is what happened to the LIBOR traders because yeah, there no, was no, a I... lynch mob, mob that went after them. And retrospectively, we now know the wrong people went to jail. Like those guys were not really to blame for anything. Mm-hmm. They were just doing their jobs, and they were they were taking you know in many cases they were whistleblowing on what was happening and the orders they were getting from the top. Some of the worst actors in LIBOR were actually the the top institutions, including the Bank of England, who was telling the traders to manipulate the, the, the LIBOR rates. So I think I think lynch mobs are bad because they lead to bad. Um, and by lynch mob, just to be clear, you mean like sort of overly reactive groups that are basically sort of like mob psychology and, yeah. and doing, yeah, I, I agree there. Any, I do think- Any psychology that makes you think it's a good idea to, to throw away, you know, centuries worth of you know, normal judicial practice because you have yeah. to make, you have to deliver a scalp to, some, you know, the, the braying mob. <laughs> I think that's Yeah, absolutely. Bad. I think, I think that's fair. I do think SBF is, in my personal opinion, is, is guilty. It certainly seems like he is. I think there's a lot of data coming out, but I agree with you that the judicial process is there for a reason, but even more important, importantly, I think, you know, this is all just about incentives, right? It's like you, just something you said, I think the worst of the financial industry, you know, when Bitcoin started to become popular, I think a lot of people were like, oh, we want to we want to we want to uh, manipulate this. We want to basically figure out how we can use VC style investment tactics. And they couldn't. And so they were like, well, let's start Ethereum. And then that that spawned so many different things. And I think that is I just don't have any any trust in the traditional judicial system as it as it stands today. I think that the solution is to use systems that are extremely resistant to the types of attacks that you don't want to be subject to. And I think Bitcoin provides a really powerful Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Judicial systems are massively flawed at the moment because of the scale issue. And they are access to the law. Like the law itself is often honest and correct. It's just the access to the law is not not there for most people or or cost prohibitive right but in a criminal case i think most people do get their day in court not everyone does that's true interesting i have a i think i may be more of a doom coiner than you are obviously (laughs) i'm I'm using that term very very loosely but i just have so little faith in in traditional legal systems and i would argue that they kind of have always been extremely corrupt i think anytime you have people in a position of power who can benefit from manipulating those systems i think it's like a tale as old as time they they will and have 
Well, you know, different different jurisdictions have different different legal systems, but you know, I think there is obviously in Europe there is a massive differentiation between continental Europe and the UK, which you know we have we have pre- law by precedent, whereas in the, on the continent it's all constitutional law and and based on you know case. I think it's called pre- precedent law. No, no, that's us. It's case law, right? So wait, where does common law fit in, or is that a totally different thing? Sorry. Where does the term common law fit in? Or is that a completely so different we, thing? In the UK, we're common law. So okay, we're basically, we, we evolve our laws based on logic. <laughs> and like, well, if you said that was wrong. <laughs> when you put it like then, that, it yeah. sounds like. Yeah. So you can't, like, if two things are contradictory, you have to then have a legal decision, which then sets the precedent. And then, and theoretically, you know, everyone's treated equal in the eyes of the law. So if someone got, you know, let off because of X and it's a similar case, then they shouldn't necessarily be taken that's why precedent is such an issue in continental europe they have they don't there is an element of precedent but by and large it's like the letter of the law is x and if if you are it doesn't matter about the situation or the context if you are seen as breaking that law you are you are going to jail and uh, and you saw that with the eu because it was i think i saw (laughs) i i was speaking to a lawyer like when we joined the eu like the British system did not gel very well with the continental system. So when the EU laws were being, we were forced to like transfer a lot of the EU laws, our, our case law, like we suddenly started, but the books we had of law just started ballooning because when you have to kind of apply a rule for every situation, you're never going to cover every situation and you abandon common sense in that process. And there's always a hack because because there's so much complexity in the system, you're just never going to figure out like a rule for every single scenario. Whereas, and so the 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 literature just started ballooning and ballooning. And this was very, very uncommon for the UK because the UK had been based on precedent and, and common law. And I'm not saying there aren't rules and there are obviously lots of laws, but they are they are shaped around common law and the Bill of Rights and, and everything. Like there are core fundamental concepts that you cannot over overrule right so then the 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 law the the inventory of law books is a slimmer and more nimble kind of beast because you you're evolving it in an evolutionary way the law system rather than this top-down like judgment way but i'm not i'm not a legal specialist so you should you probably shouldn't listen to me but i just think i think you're right that the judiciary system is not always perfect and people in the judiciary can be corrupted, of course, and leaned on and all sorts of things. But by and large, we try to, in a common law system, guard against that by being judged by your a good representation of your peers. And if your peers, if picked at random, you know, so it's like the, it's like a random number generator almost, right? So you're hoping that common sense prevails and that in the eyes of the common man, you are either guilty or I mean, I, I'm, I'm I'm muttering that, but I, I don't think it's a bad system. It's just whether you can have access to that system, and not everybody does. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I just I feel like I have such a strong bias against you know against legal systems. Now they get I feel like they've gotten better over history, but man, it's just so much potential for corruption there. Um, oh, I mean, judges, you know, life judges and all that stuff. I mean, I I do. I mean, Poland's a really interesting case because. There's a ma- I don't know how much you know about the judicial system in in Poland, but there I is. I know a- basically nothing about it. Well, Learn me some knowledge. I mean, it's very controversial because the current government 
has been trying to weed out a lot of they say communist era judges who they can't trust and they've been purging all the people like that they've been purging a lot of judges and the opposition says well that that's nothing to do with communism they're just purging people they, that they don't like right and the eu has had an issue with this because they think it's too much intervention in an independent judicial process that's supposed to basically sort itself out and the opposite mm. so the government says well yeah but that's not the case in our situation because we have this legacy of communist judges and, and like they corrupt the system so we can't have a fair system oh interesting but the eu has decided that this is a massive abuse and is restrict withholding covid relief funds from from poland so poland oh, wow. despite taking all these ukrainians and spending lots and lots of money on all sorts of ukraine related things is not getting its covid relief funds and this is this is really imposing a big heavyweight on their budget so they're now coming up with alternative ways to try and raise money including calling for reparations for for war damage from the germans right so interesting that opens an entire can of worms and it's all based around this idea of whether you can trust the judiciary and of course it's entirely subjective <laughs> so and funnily enough the eu is is less inclined to intervene in some of the legacy uh members like so italy has always been a bit of a basket case when it comes to you know you know berlusconi was notoriously very interventionist but they never withheld funds from italy so it's like one rule for legacy members and another rule for the naughty newcomers who tend to be you know a little rules bit. for thee but not for me kind of thing but so that's, but, but, but it, it speaks to your point <clears throat> which is that it's very hard to kind of figure out what's right and what's wrong <laughs> hmm. so i want to shift just slightly somebody of uh course. met so somebody mentioned in the chat, sort of, we've talked about this in several different ways throughout this conversation, but somebody mentioned specifically that you were, you know, extremely, you know, sort of negative towards Bitcoin and kind of Bitcoiners in general in the culture previous to 2020. And I, I just wanted to say, I think that it's, it's such a powerful thing when someone can, is able to shift their opinion, even though, especially in your case, like there's a lot of content writing, your reputation is based on this specific position. And I think it takes a lot to be able to acknowledge like, oh, my position has shifted and then talk about it from a different perspective. And I'm curious to hear your experience of that, whether you're like, no, oh, that's just the way it works in journalism. I, I don't feel like it is. I feel like no, a lot no, of people. I, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's hard to, to shift your position because you're like a lot of people say, oh, you're, you, you, because you you're journalists and you don't take ends with, with money, you know, you, you have no skin in the game. It's not true because you have your reputation, you know, and that's your skin in the game. That's the most important so thing if you're a journalist, right? If you U-turn, you look like a flip-flopper, right? But I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with flip-flopping because I think if you don't, if you know, you can be right but wrong if the context changes. Like I'm a very big believer that context changes everything. So you can be, it's, I'm not an absolutist. I think it's very hard to predict. I wouldn't want to like, put my life on anything because on any specific view because anything can change around different contexts right absolutely um, you get new information one should adapt their position based on that otherwise right. what are you doing as long as you have i think a logical explanation for how you went from one to the other as long as you're not just randomly flip-flopping because you look like you know opportunistically because people you want to be in with the cool gang like that as long as you have 
a good story for why you flipped, why it makes sense, you know, how you went on that path. And it wasn't some sort of very, you know, callous, you know, attempt to just stay popular. I think, I think that's what's important. Like, I'm not really bothered about being popular. I'm, I'm happy to tell people, you know, I'll say what I think. And so I, at the moment, I'm not very popular with the no coiners because I've, I've shifted my view, but that's, I'm still kind of, I'm, I'm very specific. I'm a, I'm a doom coiner. I'm still very cynical about whether Bitcoin will ever oh work on a day you'll, you'll come around on a day to day sort of hype. I mean, there, there has like the scaling thing still is an issue for me, but I mean, what about the lightning network? Right. I mean, I agree. There's still things, there are kinks being worked out. There's privacy issues, with the lightning network in certain areas, but I mean, that seems like a pretty solid foundation to be talking about these kind of day-to-day -day transaction systems. Well, it's nice that they're trying. I'm not necessarily convinced that lightning network is, I mean, I have, I haven't looked at it for a while, so they might've done new things. So I don't want to really comment on stuff that I don't know. I'm open-minded to them fixing it. At the moment, I haven't yet seen anything that doesn't remind me of how conventional banking systems have fixed things but i might be wrong because i haven't looked at it so i will i will happily investigate the latest on lightning network yeah <laughs> oh man i'm if they can change my mind i'm kind of obsessed with the lightning network so i anytime you want i would more than happily have that conversation with you i'm it's, always it's very interesting i'd be curious what are some of the issues that you when you say some issues with the lightning network or some of the things you've experienced in the past in terms of issues that traditional financial system well, what, what do you mean specifically? I'll, I'll probably, like I said, I haven't looked at it in detail for a long time, but you know, in the early days, it just seemed like a mechanism that was evolving in a very tiered way, lay, adding layers of trust into the system based on similar layering that you saw in conventional finance, like the difference between base money and M1 and M2 and M3, right? So different layers of trust, but that's how the conventional banking system worked. I mean, I'm not saying... Maybe the conventional layering is the solution. Maybe if it all squares back to an ultimate like ledger that can't be corrupted, it will make the difference. But maybe, maybe that is enough. But I kind of think, you know, like I said, I, I, I do think that on the wholesale basis, it will make a difference. And as long as the wholesale system is correct, then maybe you can extend through it via lightning network in a similar way but i i i don't want to speak to stuff that i don't know so i'm i will absolutely can, <laughs> can i what if i like sent you some some sats over lightning like right now sats over lightning okay <laughs> if you want do you want to send me sats <laughs> yes totally i want you to see how fast and, and easy it is if you have a if you have your phone uh -huh. and you and you go download an app called moon confusingly it's spelled m-u-u-n it's one of my favorite. U N. Yeah, if you just search like, do you have an, like an iOS or Android device? Just search for that in the App Store. Is this? And, is this M U U? Hang on, my phone is being so M U U N Moon Wallet. Um, yep, that's the one. And I'm gonna send you some some sets right now on okay, there. Is this self Is this self custody though? So Moon Wallet is really interesting. It is. It is. The short version is yes. The slightly longer answer is there's a, they basically combine a lightning wallet and a on-chain Bitcoin wallet, but it is by far the easiest to use and most effective, in my opinion, app for it. So if you use moon wallet, as mm -hmm. opposed to like a conventional green wallet or whatever, this reduces the fees. In so the lightning network right now has 
as almost zero fees. They're very, very low. And so yes, yes, you can send lightning is, is almost zero fees. It's like sats. Okay. So I've done it. So I press okay. receive. Yeah. So type, type Do receive. I... Yeah. And then you got a QR code, right? Yeah. I wonder if there's any, you're probably going to, it's going to be weird if you like put it up on the screen. Cause you're just going to get like a ton of sats, but you know what? <laughs> Fuck it. Why not? Let's see if we can, if you hold it up to your camera, I'm going to send you some sats. Well, right that now. won't be inverted. Let's, let's see. Oh, it worked. Okay. I'm going to send you 25 cents. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it from here. You're probably going to get like other people are just randomly going to send you like small amounts. Let's say. Probably not. <laughs> oh, did it? I've got, is that Bam. you? That was me. 20, 20, uh, and it's converted it into GBP immediately. Ah, How's that for fast? Good. That is you fast. Can, you can use the Lightning Network to pay for things all over the place. Uh, of course, El Salvador is, you know, using the Lightning Network. They, all companies there have to be able to accept it. It is incredibly exciting stuff. I got to tell you. This is BTC, which I can, which it's definitively BTC, even yes. though it's on a layered system. Yes. Um, I just sent you Bitcoin via mm -hmm. the Lightning Network. It's displaying how much it is in your local currency, but uh -huh. you you know, you have your, uh, your private keys. Those are yours. It's non, it's non custodial, or at mm. least, you know, you have full custody. And I just sent you Bitcoin via the lightning network, which is of course, it's a set, you know, the lightning network is sort of this like giant spider web of all of these lightning nodes and each lightning node in the network has channels open to other parties in the network. And then even though you and I do not have a direct connection between the lightning network I can basically route payments through all these nodes paying, you know, essentially very, 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 very low fees. And it's essentially instantaneous. Well, I'm interested in send me some more info. I will love to read up on it and see what the latest is. But if if the scaling issue is, you know, if it is actually solved, then I think that provides then that leaves only the volatility factor as the last major hurdle to overcome. The Lightning Network is pretty amazing. It's 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 definitely a huge part of the future of Bitcoin. And I'll send you a bunch well, of stuff. I'm super excited. Please, I, I like I said, I'm I will I I don't want to comment when I haven't read, so I will read and then I will get back to you. <laughs> awesome. So I want to talk about your uh, your what would you call the blind spot? A news network? A a media company? How would you define it? It's a news website service news service i mean it's it's a one man one woman and a half sort of effort at the moment i wanted to scale it up like bitcoin but it's it's, it's have a layer proving two. harder than i expected like bitcoin but it would be a shame for me not to so basically i want i didn't want to just leave the ft and go to another place where i was going to be repressed potentially <laughs> So I wanted to start my own thing on my own terms and, and be free. But I didn't want to go to Substack because I thought Substack was just another, like it didn't really solve some of the issues that I thought were happening in journalism. I really think standards and core values really matter. And and Substack also had other issues. But, but it's still, I'm generally pro Substack, but I think for me, I want to develop a brand and I, it felt very important for me to be on my own system with the capacity to scale and grow the team. And the idea really was to try and get to 
a to about 10 people focused on stories that the rest of the financial media is not really writing about and so generally going where the pack isn't going or if we go where the pack is going trying to approach it from a different angle and always being very critical minded and stress testing whatever the generic position in the market is but also I really wanted it to be about not just finance but different aspects of the well all sorts of different topics and how they potentially influence finance so finance One of the problems, I think, is that in the last 20 years, well, up until maybe 2020, everything was being financialized. And with financialization came a general kind of neutrality because everything was technocratic and very focused on just pure capital flows or whatever. So we were political stuff was being repressed right and then finance was financializing everything and then now i think actually from 2016 on onwards but really from 2020 political processes are back with a bang and finance is once again being politicized so politics is coming in and knocking on the door and trying to politicize finance and so on the blind spot i really wanted i really wanted to be able to write about finance but also address a lot of the political stuff the cultural stuff the media technology religion because i felt there was so much more influencing finance than just you know writing about bonds and i think in the conventional news system what had happened is that it become controversial to like if you are the bond reporter you can't go around talking about politics or you know because even if it influences your bond market you might refer to it but you can't have a very extended or very sophisticated idea about the political system because because you're the bond reporter right it's not your place that the political stuff comes from the political reporter but i just with the blind spot i want to be able to address all these different aspects not get told off about it because i think you finance is going to be increasingly influenced by all of them so that's that wasn't very succinct but that's kind of the idea (laughs) no it was good it was good what i heard was you were tired of being censored for trying to explain this complicated system and talk about the influences that affect it outside of sort of the dominant narratives and so you created this awesome media company so you could do whatever you wanted yes and and it's based on a subscription model but i've i've recently changed the so I've just done a piece on a really mega piece because I haven't done one for ages I've been traveling too long but I I wanted to talk about the current market rally which I think is very deeply connected to market structure issues related to ETFs and create to land and fails to deliver actually interestingly I think that's relevant for Bitcoiners because the core financial system is kind of overextended in part because of a lot of operational shorting that people don't really understand or how it how it manifests in the system which is similar to what you know you say about money creation it's happening on the periphery and and not really accounted for in the system so i've written this big piece today and usually it's like 20 pounds a month or 50 pounds a month but i've just started a new model where i'm charging five pounds for 24 24 hour access because i think Micropayments don't really work very well. Subscriptions are very expensive. And a way, if you can get just like one day's access and then be sure that at the end of it, there's no obligation to roll on. And I don't try and entrap you because that's the problem with all the other subscriptions is that when you when you sign on to them and you forget to cancel them, they immediately 
roll you over and it's freaking annoying and then you have to actually find like get a phone and speak to a person and they make it as hard as possible to unsubscribe well I don't want that relationship with my my readers I know that everyone has variable income streams I know they don't always want to read everything so I thought a good solution would be 24 hour access for five pounds and then when it finishes it ends <laughs> I'm not you gotta get try and you. <laughs> you gotta get bitcoin in there get June Seth your to show you the lightning network he it was one of the earliest people that, well, actually, we're not only the earliest people in the Lightning Network, but a bunch of us got together and created this thing called PlebNet, which is like 20 of us were like, we want to learn the Lightning Network. And we created this whole community. And he was in there super early. He knows a ton. You could be having people pay you in Bitcoin super easily. I don't, I don't, I mean, for me, the problem isn't the payments. Like, like there are a lot, lots of conventional, like whether it's PayPal, Stripe, or whatever. Oh, the I payment, know. I'm just... Payments aren't the issue. It's more model like the repeat. no i know i'm joking i'm just trying to figure out how to shoehorn shoehorn <laughs> lightning into opposed, your i'm not opposed to taking uh, uh bitcoin but i think it's integrating it around a subscription oh who's that hang on uh okay. <laughs> hang on i'll just tell them sorry i'm just i'm just doing a podcast <laughs> <Be back. laughs> sorry i'm just all oh, right <laughs> hang on all right bye Sorry, I'm going. It's all right. I just wanted to hear about what it's like working with you and Seth. He is hilarious, amazing, totally insane, and uh, a good friend, friend of the show. How did you, how did you find him? How did you interact with him? What what was that process like? Yeah, it's weird. So he invited me on a podcast because he they had interviewed when he was doing Bitcoin Uncensored. Him and Krista Rose, I think they had interviewed a famous economist called Eugene Farmer. And I couldn't believe that these random guys who don't wear shirts had managed to bag such a great interview with like such a preeminent economist and that persuaded them to go on on their show. And actually, when I listened to the show, because I was all no coinery at the time, and I was like, oh, I bet they've been idiots. I bet they asked really shitty questions. And when I listened to the podcast, I was like, actually, they're asking really smart questions. It was a really fun podcast. And I thought... I underestimated them. So I wrote something on about it, I think. And that's when I think Joseph reached out to me whether I wanted to go on his podcast. And I did go on the podcast and I think we had a blast and I really enjoyed talking to him. And I've, I, I thought he was very smart and I, and he really, I think he was the first person that really changed my perspective on the community as well, because he he was obviously coming at it from a very sophisticated perspective and wasn't, I know he likes to pretend he's dumb, but he's not dumb at all. So we hit it off and I invited him like a few times to get involved in Alphaville stuff. And, and we just, I just really like his company. And I guess I would dare say that we're maybe friends. <laughs> So I thought when I was starting on my own, I couldn't think of anyone better to partner up with than than him. Yeah, he's amazing. For our listeners, if you have not listened to Bitcoin Uncensored, you got to. It's absolutely incredible. It's June Seth and his co-host. They would do stuff like go to conferences that they weren't invited to and run their podcast shirtless from the bathrooms. They would just stop people and be like, oh, hey, let me ask you some highly technical questions about Bitcoin. And it's, it's just incredible stuff. We've had him on this show a couple of times. You can go back and listen to those and see the types of insanity. I have not yet watched. You published a, a, a recording recently with June Seth, American Hoddle, Alan Farrington, and Brad Mills about FTX. I'm extremely excited to go listen to it. But uh, the, the thing about my podcast with Joseph are that they do go on for a bit because we can talk forever. Of course. But he is, he's so much fun and really knows his stuff. And he's not, he has always a different perspective to offer. Just when I think 
no one can justify x or y he does <laughs> I'm like, okay i didn't think of it that way he's great um i i you know we're, we're just getting going i've i've been very thinly ugh, thinly spread so hopefully we'll get them coming up regularly once a week now and cover all sorts of topics and the idea really is that it's a bit like Mulder and scully you know so we're, we're <laughs> Or the odd couple, like one's a real believer, the other's a bit more skeptical. I love but, it. You know. Well, if anyone can orange pill someone while screaming about totally insane things, it's you and Seth, hundred percent. Good stuff. What do you think the? What do you think? I think we're, we've already talked about it, but what do you think the largest threat right now to Bitcoin adoption is? Well, I think the current debacle is not good. Like, I think it will hurt adoption like there's lots of people can't differentiate bitcoin from crypto right so it's going to get entangled in the mess of of ftx it's a regulation um, basically yeah i think i think that's definitely going to happen but i think that's not necessarily bad i think it's like no this is cliche but it's like when dot com happened and then out of that came you know massive surveillance companies no i think eventually it will rebuild and restructure itself and and maybe that's the opportunity to maybe without this ftx explosion it would have been going down the coinbase path forevermore right and and actually maybe this is the moment the industry gets a bit smaller a little less greedy but more focused on on its core like use case actual utility not just speculation that would be great got it well is there any questions, you know, I can talk about the Lightning Network. I'm curious if there's anything we haven't talked about that you were like excited to dive into. Um, mm. Get any questions for me, just in general, um, if there's things you want to talk about, promote. Well, how, 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 you know, what do you make of the media situation at the moment? Total me and Jemima are on a big panel in Bitcoin Amsterdam yeah. about Bitcoin's media problem. And it was, it was a bit explosive. And I think actually it was a shame because I think... I think Jemima is an intelligent critic and I I think, you know, she was talking about consumer harm and I think that is, there's no doubt that there is consumer harm. And I, I, I feel a bit, I do think we need to take that seriously. And it is, it is, it isn't great when it's entirely dismissed and, and, and swept under the carpet. And it, what was a shame is that afterwards she did get piled on for, for making some of these points. And I think, that's to the detriment of the community because I and I can understand, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in the middle and I, I can understand why, you know, the community is very defensive and, and they they feel sometimes, oh, well, the media is being mean and, and not not really getting us. And so their instinct is to is to pile on. But I, I think and Jemima was able to laugh at quite a few of the memes because some of them were quite funny. But the but overall, I, do, I I feel it's a shame that there's still this sort of pile on attitude in in the industry and maybe in the community rather. And I know it's not everybody, and I know every, there's hugely complex and diverse community, so it's it's hard to kind of like pinpoint on any any one specific. But I think I think it would be good if the if 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 there was a bit more maturity but also fun i mean it's fun like memes are funny don't get me wrong i like the memes but, but maybe a bit more respect for for critics maybe <laughs> i will say i thought she took that like a champ like she reposted but by the way that panel was fantastic again as you said it was a panel from bitcoin amsterdam it was super interesting it was with pete rizzo joe hall it was daniel prince you and jemima and yeah i thought it was very interesting I will say, I thought she definitely said some things that I was like, come on. I think that the volatility of Bitcoin is a significant problem. 
but it felt like a lot of the claims that she was making were 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 more like fud based rather than exploratory. I thought that I feel like the conversations we've had here today and the and the comments that you were making were very you were open to the situation as it was happening and open to learning new things and it felt like she was coming from a, a salty no coiner perspective, <laughs> as she as she describes herself. As she described it, yeah. I, but you know what? I think we all live and learn, and I think me in my twenties is very different to me in my forties. And I think as you get older, you get a bit more humble because you realize that you've been wrong a few times here and there, and you, you're less. I don't. I, I mean, Jemima's a mature lady. Don't get me wrong, but I think you know. I'm, but I'm that little bit older, so I think if you're coming from traditional media when you're in your 30s you're still very kind of gung-ho and 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 to be honest like Jemima does a great job arguing her case and I think it's important for her voice to be there I believe in diversity of of opinion and and hopefully good and respectful dialogue between critics so all, You've come all, the, wrong place. all the better <laughs> for everyone not I mean it's boring when everybody agrees with each other, frankly. Definitely, definitely. I think that panel was great for that reason. I think controversy is always interesting and I think it pulls people in. But yeah, it just seemed like some of the things she was saying were were running for. Well, I, I also I, I can exclusively reveal that she's currently on the on on the trail of Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago. But that's probably well... Sure, her piece will be she, well. She's there now, so I suspect whatever she writes about it will be out next week. But it sounds like an adventure. All right, <laughs> interesting. I want to ask you a, a, one more unrelated question, and then and then we'll wind down. What is the craziest? Again, in my head, going back to uh, I'm sorry. What was the name of the the, the Skunk Works team that you were part of? Uh, FT Alpha Alpha Squad. Alphaville. Yeah. Alpha Squad Alpha sounds cooler. A week a team is fine as well. <laughs> All right. So I'm imagining you, you're in the situation. It's just like a, you know, 1980s style, you know, police academy, police station where you guys are sort of like the vice squad. Everybody's afraid of you. You're chain smoking cigarettes, looking terrifying. What is the craziest? I, this is 100% accurate. And, you know, don't tell me otherwise. I know. What is the craziest story that you guys covered where you were like, oh man, maybe we're in over our heads? Oh, <laughs> I mean, there were lots. I mean, Wirecard was obviously, I didn't do that one myself, but Dan did. Obviously, that was the biggest and scariest and craziest story of all. I don't know if you know about it, but. Can you tell us about it? Wirecard was a German payments company, which Dan, my colleague, started looking at ages ago, maybe 2016, 20, a long time. It went, the first piece was, I think, around 2016. Anyway, he, he, he the accounts just didn't add up and he was you know writing away about it but it was very boring and very like the company was very boring payments company and it was based in germany and nobody no nobody really heard about it and so people ignored it and then in the next few years its market valuation just went parabolic it was mooning as you would say as if out of nowhere and and Dan was convinced, like he he knew, he had sources, he'd looked at it, he was convinced it was a fraud. And so he kept writing about it every now and then. But every time he wrote about it, the the co the company would would create a I mean, they would attack him and, and push him around. And then out of the blue, there were these pylons on him on Twitter and saying that he's like in league with hedge like short sellers and like, so the company had obviously recruited some very dark arts, social media influence type ops. And so that was already getting crazy. And then they were threatening to sue him and blah, blah, blah. But there was an intrinsic problem in the accounts. And long story short, 
it became like a national event because like the German, it, it became like a FT versus Germany thing. So the, all the German regulators, the giant, the German judicial system, even like they, they all, they all sided with Wirecard with this like fake, fake news that Dan must've been a, like in league with the short sellers and take pocketing money from writing these bad stories about the company. They didn't believe him. And the FT stood up for Dan and 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 his boss at the time, Paul Murphy, and and defended them. But it it cost a lot of money to defend us, and it was all looking a bit murky until finally, eventually, in twenty twenty, I think, it was revealed that they did indeed have a billion dollar hole in their accounts. But it was only because Ensign Young finally delivered the goods and sudden and, and eventually Dan was vindicated. But the whole process was awful because like they were bribing people, they were using all sorts of tactics. They were using there were spies involved and some of the players were incredibly dodgy and and they had hired people to spy on Dan and try and intimidate him to stop writing about it. It was it was weapons grade shit. It was insane. And now there's a Netflix documentary about what he went through. So do watch it. It's called Scandal with a K. So I was I'm I'm only slight. I'm I'm referenced a couple of times in the book, but not in I'm not in the film. But it was definitely an experience. That was the biggest biggest nearly not like if it was at, at one point. It was either the FT was going to go down or Wirecard <laughs> because they wow. were that there was so much money at risk because we would have had to defend ourselves in court and the the costs of the court case were just massive. Wow, that's super interesting. And they were bluffing; they were totally bluffing the entire way. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow, well, I'm a glad like, you stood behind a you bit guys. Li- a bit like SBF. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, man, interesting. All right, well, we're winding down. I want to encourage you to check out the Lightning Network. We'll follow up with some more information. Please reach out if you have any questions. June Seth is also an incredible resource. It has come a very long way and it's very exciting. It's one of the most exciting things about Bitcoin these days. And is there anything, how can people find you, get in touch with you? Where should they follow you? So I'm on Twitter. I'm verified from before. Like I was never verified. I resisted being verified for 13 years. Because I always thought the verification thing was really like, (laughs) I had, I was really, I thought like the whole status wars about it was just ridiculous. So I defied verification by being not verified. But then when I left the FT, I noticed like, I don't know if I'd been shadow banned or whatever, but my follow count just was going nowhere. And sometimes I thought like people were telling me that I dropped off their feeds. And so I applied to be verified like independently, but at least it was on my terms, not because the FT had endorsed me. And I managed to get verified just before Elon took over the company, like through the old archaic system. So Uh... I still have my blue tick, but I only got it right at the end, tail end of the old system. But I'm on at Iza Kaminska, that's I-Z-A-K-A-M-I-N-S-K-A. Do follow me there. I usually like tweet in the middle of the night when I'm half asleep and make lots of typos and, so. you know, say stupid things. And then the website is The Blind Spot. And, you know, I beggars can't be choosers. So it's the-blindspot.com. Annoying dash, but I, I had no option. It was either that or some other weird melange. So the-blindspot.com. And other than that, yeah, YouTube, 
check out i think i've got i think we now can finally got 1000 subscribers me and joseph so i've been allowed to choose my handle and i think i went for the blind spot podcast on youtube oh, all right all right keeping people on their toes so well, thank you so much for joining us. Out and, and if you like my stuff, subscribe. Keep me independent because otherwise I will be forced to go back into the mainstream. <laughs> back into the den of wolves. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Let's stay in touch. I'll send you no, some stuff by the fun. Lightning Network and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you very much. It was, it was a, a lot of fun. Take care. See ya. I want to remind everyone that you can use code BMLIVE to get your tickets for Bitcoin 2023. The same code, that's BMLIVE, will also save you 10%, not only on the tickets, but also on a subscription to the print mag, which, as I've said before, is fucking incredible. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. It's worth your time. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. Lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It featured articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beautyon, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.